Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Jinardan Ganaria and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Standard Deductions, Nyaya on Reasoning. According to the Nyaya school, we can know about the world around us simply by perceiving it. As we saw in the last episode, Gautama and his commentators offered a spirited defense of perception as a source of knowledge. Our senses tell us about things and their properties, and even about absences. But let's face it, we aren't going to be able to get through life working with nothing but perceptions. Suppose you are an ancient Indian walking through a forest. You hear a distinctive low growling sound, unmistakably the sort of sound made by a tiger. Fortunately, you are familiar with the right way to handle such a situation, run like hell. But to apply this rule, you have to do more than perceive the sound, you need to make an inference. You do not run from the sound, but from the unseen tiger whose presence you infer from the sound. As this example shows, your ability to make inferences is crucial to your survival just as much as your ability to perceive. Gautama duly lists inference alongside perception as a pramana, or source of knowledge. The close link between these two pramanas is indicated by the Sanskrit term for inference, which is anumana, meaning that which follows after perception. It is inference that allows us to go beyond what is directly perceived to that which we cannot perceive. It may be hidden, like the tiger in the trees, or it may be the sort of thing that cannot be perceived at all, like the illness whose presence we infer from the symptoms it causes in the body. We choose the example advisedly. In setting out his theory of inference, Gautama seems to have been influenced by early medical works like the Charaka Samhita. Diagnosis is a paradigm case of inference. Cough and fever are signs of pneumonia, which is less dangerous than a tiger, but still nothing to sneeze at, ironically enough. In Indian discussions of inference, however, the standard example is one with which we're already familiar. The mountain has fire because it has smoke. Here, what we perceive is smoke on the distant hillside. From this sign, we can arrive at knowledge of the presence of an unseen fire. Philosophers who like to show off their knowledge of Latin would call the smoke a probans and the fire a probandum, meaning, respectively, that which offers proof and that which is proven. The Nyaya thinkers, who were understandably not so strong on scholastic Latin terminology, call the smoke a hetu or linga, meaning mark or sign. A sign must always be present in the object about which we make an inference, which is called the paksha, the mountain where smoke is observed, or the trees from which emanate the disconcerting growl. Then there is the thing whose presence we infer from the sign in that object, which is called the sadhya or sadhya dharma, the fire on the mountain, the tiger in the trees. As we noted in our previous discussion of the smoke and fire example, Nyaya logicians also gave great weight to the ability to mention an example, such as the smoke-producing fire in the kitchen. In other words, our inferences should be supported by naming a second case where the same kind of sign revealed the presence of the same kind of signified thing. When I tell you why you should have that cough checked out, I explained that I knew a guy who had just these same symptoms and he died of pneumonia, or at least he would have if he hadn't first been eaten by a tiger because he was walking in the woods while listening to a podcast with the volume turned up. Of course, the fact that you can give one parallel example doesn't mean that your inference reliably yields knowledge. 
Suppose you see fire on a mountain and infer that there must be smoke. This wouldn't be an acceptable form of reasoning. True, fire sometimes produces smoke, but we've also seen fiery things that didn't produce smoke. So fire is not a dependable sign of smoke. And now that we think about it, tiger sounds aren't an absolutely reliable sign of tigers either. Perhaps someone is hiding in the woods, doing an incredibly realistic tiger impression, or playing tiger sounds from a tape recorder. Younger listeners may want to ask their parents what a tape recorder is. Clearly, if the Nyayakas are going to convince us that inferences are, in some cases, unimpeachable sources of knowledge, they owe us a story about which sorts of signs are reliable indicators. We can piece together just such a story from remarks made by Gautama and his commentator Vatsyayana. Gautama thinks that there are three kinds of dependable sign. He calls them Purvavat, based on what is prior, Sheshavat, based on a remainder, and Samanya Todrista, observation of a generality. The original meaning of these three terms is obscure, and even the earliest commentators were unsure what exactly they meant. But Ziyayana was so uncertain, in fact, that he offered two alternative interpretations. His first suggestion is that Gautama means reasoning from cause to effect, from effect to cause, and from a generalization to a particular case. Hence, the first type would be like saying it will rain because of the large black cloud. The second would be like deducing that it has been raining because the river is swollen. The third, that the sun must be moving at the moment, even though it doesn't look like it, because over a longer period of time, it is observed to change position. Despite the rather humble examples, we can credit Vatsyayana with sketching out an account of scientific inference and prediction. His three types of sign have obvious applications in medicine, and the case of the sun's motion suggests how his ideas might be relevant to a field like astronomy. But as we say, this is only one of two interpretations offered by Vatsyayana. His second possible reading would assign Gautama's three technical terms to three entirely different sorts of reasoning. We could take the first term, based on what is prior, to refer to all sorts of causal inference, so this would include all the sorts of inference canvassed in the previous interpretation. The second term, based on a remainder, might refer to reasoning by process of elimination. Vatsyayana's example is, sound is a substance because it is not a universal, not a quality, not a motion, and so on. Here, then, we envision a fixed number of possibilities which, taken together, exhaust all the options, and then eliminate all but one. Here we might think of the way doctors use tests to rule out possible diagnoses in order to settle on one particular kind of bad news. Or, for that matter, we might think of Sherlock Holmes's famous remark that when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Third and finally, Gautama's idea of observing a generality could mean that we assign a property to something because of the class of things to which it belongs. You might, for instance, infer that tigers are predators from the fact that they are cats, since all cats are predators. Vatsyayana gives the example... Mental states are qualities, qualities have subjects, therefore there is a subject of mental states, namely the self. If we still hadn't noticed that this whole discussion of inference is important for philosophical method, as well as for medical diagnosis and the avoidance of tigers, this example should set us straight. And, as we know, the Nyayakas are very keen on the idea of giving examples. Elsewhere in the Nyaya Sutra, Gautama explains why saying that there are actually two kinds of example that can serve to motivate an inference. 
On the one hand, there are positive examples, which turn on a similarity. This would be like the favorite case of smoke indicating fire on a mountainside, which also happens in the kitchen. On the other hand, there are negative examples, where we allude to a situation where the sign is absent and the thing signified is also absent. Instead of referring to the kitchen, we might refer to the surface of a lake. Here the reasoning trades on a disanalogy instead of an analogy. In the case of lake water, neither smoke nor fire are found, so by disanalogy the mountain, which does have smoke, should have fire as well. Whether we give a positive or negative example, such reasoning moves straightforwardly from one case to another, from kitchen or lake to mountainside. No appeal is made to any law of nature or universal rule. While this may seem a bit naive, there is in fact much to be said in favor of such case-based reasoning. Suppose I want to persuade you that it is about to rain. I might argue as follows. Look, it is going to rain. Just look at that large black cloud. Last time you saw a large black cloud like that one, what happened? It rained, right? Well, it's the same now, so it's definitely going to rain. The Nyaya Sutra offers a range of cases to illustrate this pattern of reasoning. Seeing ants carrying their eggs, one infers that it will rain. Seeing a full and swiftly flowing river, one infers that it has been raining. Seeing smoke, one infers the presence of an unseen fire. Of course, one might delve deeper and try to understand why certain signs are regularly linked to certain things. We may have observed that ants often carry their eggs around when rain is imminent, but remain mystified as to how ants are able to predict the weather in advance. The same applies to a kind of inference we encountered in a previous episode, where we use a sampling procedure. From the salty taste of one drop of seawater, we infer that the whole sea is salty. By tasting one grain of rice, we infer that all the rice is cooked. Of course, we make inferences like these constantly in everyday life. We effortlessly and tacitly assume that there is some common underlying structure between the sample and the rest. This one grain was in the same pan as all the other grains, was heated in the same water for the same amount of time, and so on. So, if it is ready to eat, so is the rest of the rice. But again, case-based reasoning may sometimes go awry, so it becomes a matter of cardinal importance to be able to distinguish between genuine and bogus cases of resemblance. This is the subject of the whole final book of the Nyaya Sutra, a section that some modern scholars have seen as an independent work rather than as an integral part of the text. Whether or not it was written separately, this last book shows us that Gautama was just as interested in how things can go wrong as he was in how we get things right. Argument based on a false resemblance suffers from the fallacy known as jati, merely apparent commonality between an example and a locus. Think of our former case where we infer the presence of a tiger in the trees. While it is true that in other cases that sound has come together with a real tiger, Hopefully, in this case, it is only a tape recorder. Gautama, in fact, identifies no fewer than five sorts of fallacy that undermine arguments and inferences. The Sanskrit term for fallacy is hetvabasa, which literally means something that merely has the appearance of being a sign. The importance of fallacies has partially to do with the Nyaya interest in debate. Spotting a fallacy in an opponent's argument is a sure way to win. As we have seen, though, Gautama is also interested in the dependability of scientific prediction and medical prognosis. And of course, working out the ways that arguments can go astray is also an indirect way of showing what a sound argument is. 
if you manage to avoid all five kinds of fallacy, you can be sure that you are reasoning correctly. Gautama named his five fallacies, the deviating, the incoherent, the indecisive, the same predicament, and the mistimed, which coincidentally are also the five pitfalls faced by teenagers when they start dating. Let's take them each in turn. First, the deviating. This fallacy occurs when a sign is present, but the inferred property is not. But Zyayana illustrates with the example, sound is eternal because it is intangible. The problem here is that we can name other cases of intangible things that are not eternal, for instance, a mental state such as pain. Pain is intangible, but thankfully not eternal. It will go away eventually. Turning this around, the implication is that a dependable sign must not deviate from the property inferred from the sign. To put it another way, it must be the case that wherever the sign occurs, so does the signified. Gautama is in effect warning us that it is not enough to provide an analogy. There needs to be a universal rule connecting sign with signified. Only if tiger noises always signify tigers can you confidently infer that there is a tiger in the trees, though you might want to run anyway, just to be on the safe side. The universal rule, called Vyapti, was to become a major topic of philosophical inquiry in later Nyaya, initiated in the 13th century by Gangesha, with his celebrated five definitions of Vyapti. Second, the incoherent. By this, Gautama means that the conclusion of an argument should not contradict other well-established beliefs, even if the conclusion looks plausible when taken out of its surrounding context. Here, we are not dealing with a purely formal defect internal to a single inference. Rather, the point is that we reason within a larger set of commitments. Even if an inference seems sound, if it clashes with your other firmly held beliefs, then it would be rational to doubt your premises. A rather strained example, given by the Nyayakas, runs like this. Fire is cold because it is a substance. Their thought here is that this inference is more plausible than it sounds because all substances other than fire and fiery things are indeed cold. But of course the reasoning is fallacious because fire is the one exception to the general rule. We can avoid falling into the trap by calling on our wider net of beliefs, which raise a warning flag by telling us that fire is in fact hot, so the argument must have gone wrong. Third, the indecisive. In the situation envisaged here, there are two equally strong arguments leading to opposite conclusions. Although neither can be faulted on formal grounds, we should reserve judgment as to whether either one is any good. Consider the rather trivial argument, sound is eternal because it is eternal. The argument is formally valid because it's a tautology, and all tautologies are valid, though not very informative. Compare, Socrates is mortal, and all mortals are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. But why is this not a good argument? Because we might equally well reason, sound is non-eternal because it is non-eternal. In the absence of any ground for preferring one of these tautologies over the other, neither can be accepted. The point is highly reminiscent of the skepticism practiced by ancient Greek thinkers like Sextus Empiricus. They tried to induce suspension of judgment in their readers by arguing on both sides of a given philosophical issue. If there are persuasive considerations on both sides, the only rational thing to do is withhold assent. But of course Gautama's point about the indecisive fallacy is not intended to support skepticism. 
While he cautions us to avoid making inferences in the face of an equally compelling contrary inference, he assumes that this problem will arise only occasionally and not be pervasive to philosophical argumentation, as Sextus proposed. Fourth, the same predicament. Gautama declares that a sign that is not distinguished from what is signified is said to have the same predicament, because it itself needs to be proved. Once again, we can be grateful to Vatsyayana for making things clear with an example. Consider the argument, a shadow is a substance because it moves. This looks like a good inference insofar as movement is something unique to substances. The problem here is that the sign, the proposition that a shadow moves, has not itself been demonstrated. It's no good arguing for a doubtful proposition on the strength of some other doubtful proposition. Rather, we want to resolve the doubtful case by appealing to known facts. Fifth and finally, and rather enigmatically, we have the mistimed. Commentators could not agree on what Gautama meant here. The basic idea is apparently that sometimes merely formulating a thesis would be enough to show that it cannot be true. In such a case, offering a reason in support of the thesis would be unnecessary or pointless, hence mistimed. The later Nyayakas, however, interpret it rather differently. They think of cases where an intended conclusion has already been shown to be false by some other means. Thus, argumentation becomes redundant or otiose. But this seems like an implausible reading, since this would rather be a case of the incoherent, where the inference fails to fit with one one is already committed to. This redundancy was in fact pointed out by the Buddhist philosopher Shantarakshita. Alternatively, then, we might think of a thesis that is just obviously false. It's a waste of time to try to reason in favor of a self-contradictory thesis like there is a tiger in the trees but no tiger in the trees, or one that is patently absurd like there is a tiger in the trees but don't worry, he's a vegetarian. Gautama's discussion of argumentation and its potential failure displays a keen sensitivity to the nature of philosophical activity and to the demands of science. We have considered his logical teachings in some detail because the Nyaya school is so notable for its analysis of philosophical method and the nature of argument. Even the most determined skeptic would have difficulty denying that this is philosophy, though from a Western perspective, we may be puzzled by the lack of a sharp distinction between the purely rational and the empirical, or if you too prefer to show off with Latin terminology, the a priori and the a posteriori. As we'll see later in this series, though, it was not only Nyaya that contributed to logical analysis in the Indian tradition. Nagarjuna, who was certainly a determined skeptic, subjected the theory of reasoning to a searching critique, and another Buddhist named Dignaga would go on to provide a more precise definition of the good inferential sign. But we're not yet done laying the groundwork for the contrast between Nyaya and the Buddhists. As we've mentioned many times, the Buddhists were notorious for their denial of any stable self that exists through time and serves as the locus of awareness and experience. As with their theory of reasoning, Nyaya is more optimistic on this score. Gautama and his followers affirm that there is a self and investigate our faculties of thought and attention. So join us next time as we turn from Nyaya epistemology and logic to Nyaya philosophy of mind, here on the history of philosophy in India. Allah,